My name is David Swanson, the pastor here, and I get a little bit of the morning off today, which is great when we have a guest uh, preacher. The Reverend Debbie Blue is the executive minister of Compassion, Mercy, and Justice Ministries. Am I close? Like in the ballpark? For our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, I don't know if that sounds impressive to you or not, but it should Debbie is a close friend to me, but more than that, someone who pastors me. And, uh, and pastors need pastors, and, uh, and Debbie is, is a pastor to me and has cared for my soul in very important ways when she and I get together. And she's w- one of the very few people who I can sort of say, here it is, you know, in all of its mess. And, and she, she treats me very tenderly in that and speaks words of truth and encouragement to me. And so I want you to be pastored this morning by someone who has pastored me. Um, this, uh, this Sunday is the day before we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, so you're, you're getting some of the sense of that, I hope, in our worship service today. Debbie's not here because of that, but it's just kind of God's providential timing, I think, uh, that, that that she comes to us uh, on, a, on the day before this celebration to speak, I think, um, some things that maybe are going to align with some of Dr. King's legacy. So how this is going to work is, is Debbie is going to preach or speak or facilitate because she claims she's not a preacher, so we'll see afterwards whether you agree with that or not. She's going to speak, and then uh, if we've got a little bit of time, I'm going to come up and just uh, engage her in a few questions that I think are questions that might bubble up from our church, uh, things that, that we, in our context, might be wrestling with together. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So, Debbie, if you want to come up, I want to pray for you real quick here, and then we will we'll get started. Uh, church, will you stand with me, and, uh, and let's pray for our guest preacher today. And so, Holy Spirit, you've already been speaking, you've already been active, you've already been convicting, you've already been encouraging. So we just ask that you continue to do that now uh, through the Reverend Debbie Blue. We ask that uh, her spirit would be incredibly sensitive to your Holy Spirit's uh, 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 work in this room even now. And God, this isn't her church, and so she needs your insight to speak specifically to us, something only you can do. So we acknowledge that, and we ask that you would do that now. Open our hearts to receive that which you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you welcome her, please, this morning? Thank you, Pastor David. Yeah, I am excited about being here this morning, and I thank you that the worship this morning, all my sisters and brothers who were backing you up, my goodness, God was working, he was moving, and I was convicted. Um, But I thank you, my Pastor David, um, for the invitation to be here with your new community this morning, and um, what he said about our relationship is true in part. He didn't say that it's mutual because he also pastors to me. And I, um, I do appreciate you and thank you. And to your wife and beautiful little son and just all of you, it's just really, really a blessing and a privilege to be here with you today. And so today, sun, this Sunday, is, as David has said, your pastor has said, Um, The denomination's um, new department, Compassion, Mercy, and Justice, we're three years old. 
And this is the first designated Sunday that we have on the denominational calendar that are setting aside compassion, mercy, and justice this day. We don't have any activities planned, but just to make you aware that this is our first designated CMJ, Compassion, Mercy, and Justice Sunday for the denomination. So that's a huge move for us as the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I praise God for that. And I also want to recognize yesterday was Dr. King's birthday. Tomorrow we celebrate Dr. King's birthday. But it is the birthday, the recognition of a great man who did great things for a very broken world. And so tomorrow, I don't know what you have planned to do, but I would just pray that you would remember what he brought into our society to help us move us along to where God intends us to be. So thank you for that prayer this morning. I usually start with prayer, but your pastor has prayed for me, and I don't think I need to try to be one-upmanship on that. But I'll just ask God that the words of my, my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable to him. So new community, Bronzeville, good to be here. You look very different from my church. I'm a Southsider. Been a Southsider pretty much. Somebody back there knows that. Yep. You, Cottage Grove, I heard you on the video. Yes. All right. Southside all my life. Um, love it. But for some, when they hear the word Southside of Chicago, it's like saying, that's Samaria. But you know what? It's okay. It's home for me. And so it, it's good to be here in Bronzeville this morning. And I've been invited this morning to speak on a topic that's near and dear to all of our hearts. It's the topic of power. Power. Don't we love that word? Power. So we'll be talking this morning from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14, and then skipping over to chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. I won't read that yet. We'll get to that. But um, as I thought about this word power, I like Wikipedia. Any of you Wikipedia fans? Okay, Wikipedia had a pretty hefty list of sources of power, which I'm sure are all very familiar to most of us, if not all. And Wikipedia talks about power being held through delegated authority, uh, through personal or group charisma, Anybody here got charisma, got some of that power? Talked about ascribed power or acting on perceived or assumed abilities. Doesn't matter that they've been tested or not, but you've just been ascribed that power. It could be expertise. Uh, our, our sister talked about um, the gift of, of being able to lead us in worship. She has some power that I don't have. She's got that voice, but also she's got that O oh, that's down in there. That's something that we all got, too, that we need to access. But thank you for the sharing that gift, your skills and ability and your giftedness. But also other examples of expertise in medicine and law and the whole nine yards. It also talks about um, persuasion, having the power of persuasion. 
that you're able to convince people. It could be direct, indirect, or even subliminal. He talk, Wikipedia talks about the, the power of knowledge. You know, there's, there's this um, knowledge is power saying that I can give you so much, but I'm not going to give you all because then you might be equal to me. Familiar with that? How about celebrity power? We have tons of celebrities here who have tons of power that they are using it for good or evil or bad. They have power. Talks about power being a force. It could be a force of violence or it could be a force of coercion. It could be a force of mighty might. Talks about um, group dynamics. There, there could be power in group dynamics. Um, the social influence of tradition carries some power. Um, there's power in relationships. There could be, especially we see in, in marriage relationships, dominance or submissiveness. Um, there's also power in social class. Material wealth, often in our society, equals power. And then Wikipedia talks about it could be a moral persuasion, like religion. Well, I stumbled upon an interesting book title. The title was Power, Why Some People Have It and Others Don't. Well, the content of the book was even more interesting in that um, as I skimmed it, the author was seeking to help the reader build a path to power. The chapter, there is a chapter called Personal Qualities That Bring Influence. And in this chapter, it guides one in looking at ways to project an image of power. It talks about the clothes we wear, our body language, and there were, much, there were more things that he talked about in this chapter. But there was another chapter entitled, It's Easier Than You Think. And the author asserts that some people think they don't or won't like playing the power game. But how can they know until they try it? Pretty interesting take on power. And then he gives an illustration of a young woman who decided to take the ideas in the book and try them out. And so what she said in her words, she found that she enjoyed acquiring power. And why? because she received lots of recognition and praise. That's what power is all about, isn't it? Well, some of us may find this to be helpful, uh, this book and some of the chapters of the authors for our respective contexts, our work environment, our home situation, our social relationships. But the book that we're looking at today gives us a much different view, a kingdom view of what power must look like and how we use power. And I firmly believe, different from what the chapters in that author's book was, I believe it's not based on personal qualities that will bring influence, nor is it easier than we think. And so I'd like to speak today on ambition to achieve greatness. Ambition to achieve greatness. And if you would go with me, over to Matthew 18. And starting with the first verse. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He called a little child whom he placed among them, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And now go with me, flip over to chapter 20. And we will start at verse 20. This is a mother coming to Jesus. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to, to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ambition to achieve greatness. I'm going to take a minute and ask you to think back with me for a moment. 
think about your early childhood, what were your earliest ambitions or aspirations when you were a child? We all have thoughts of what we want to be when we grow up. What did you want to be when you grew up? Think about that. And just turn to somebody and just tell them what, that, what comes to mind for you. Let's hear one or two. Just shout them out, popcorn fashion. What did you want to be? A meteorologist. Who even heard that word when they were children? (laughs) How old were you, John? Oh, wow. You are already heavy. Wow, okay. A meteorologist. Okay, who else? An astronaut, okay. Keep yelling them out. A nurse and a dancer. I'm sorry, I thought I heard someone say exotic dancer. (laughs) So a nurse and a dancer, okay. (laughs) Got that straight. (laughs) What else? A teacher, okay. A secretary. That's a, that's a word that's uh, kind of antiquated today. Yeah, okay. Well, think about this. Keep thinking now. What were behind these ambitions or aspirations that you had? What were the motivations? Why? What was appealing about these aspirations, these ambitions to you? What was attractive Again, let's just hear from you. Okay, your mom wanted you to be that, okay. I wonder why your mom wanted you. What, what did she want you to be? A chemical engineer, okay. All right. She wanted you to make a lot of money, huh? Okay. Any other thoughts? What, what motivated you to, to aspire to these meteorologists, dancers, singers, nurses, secretaries, teachers, roles. To save the world. Whew! That's pretty powerful. What did you want to be? Conservationist. Say it louder. Okay, save the animals. Save the planet. Good. Okay. Okay, wanted to care for people and wanted to be beautiful. Okay. Oh, all right, there you go. Wanted to be an attorney, make a lot of money, and be very powerful. Okay. Anybody else have some of those thoughts, motivations behind why they wanted to be what they wanted to be? Okay, a few of us. Okay. <laughs> So you want to be God, right? (laughs) To know why the seasons always changed. You're very curious. Okay. Well, those are 
things we probably won't get until we get to heaven and ask God about it. But whatever your thoughts were and your motivations, what you aspire to in those motivations, probably many of them had to do with how we were going to succeed in life, right? How we're going to be successful. And success and succeeding and um, growing, spreading, becoming powerful, usually were attached to dollars, how much money we could make and things that we could do with that. But then think about it, and we won't have you respond. This is just something for you to reflect on. When, say, for instance, being a lawyer and making a lot of money and being very powerful, when you became involved in a relationship with Christ, did that change those motivations? Did that affect or impact your ambitions? And then the last question, or last two questions, how did you and now how do you understand this concept of greatness? Did anybody here, as we read the text, in their early childhood memories ever aspire to be a servant or a slave? Jesus ends this passage with being a servant and a slave. I have trouble with that. Um, Worship this morning really convicted me and, and moved my heart. And someone in prayer this morning was praying that the Holy Spirit would even speak to my heart about what it was that God would have me share with you. And uh, in preparing this um, message, you know, I thought, okay, this sounds really good. This is what Christ is calling us to do and to be. And, okay, let me just prepare words and bring it to you. But this morning, I had to wrestle with the servant and slave piece. Because you know what? I come from a long line, a history of servants and slaves. And I never aspired to be a servant or a slave. And so to be um, perfectly honest with you today, as you talk about reconciliation and righteousness and um, this is compassion, mercy, and justice, and we're celebrating Dr. King's weekend, I'm wondering, God, are you intending this for people who are ready, are servants and slaves? Is this passage for us? We live there. Or are you intending this for another audience, those who are the powerful and who are the um, well-to-do, and who are the successful ones, who are the ones that can make the rules that oppress other people. And so as Jesus tells his disciples about their aspirations to greatness, he concludes by saying, as a servant you are great. As a slave, you are first. That does not compute for me. 
Let's go back and look at these disciples. They've been hanging out with Jesus for three years now. Now, we come to worship every Sunday, and we hear the word, and some of us may even study the word during the week, and so we can um, say we got it and then move on. But here were people who lived with Jesus for three years, and now they've walked the earth with them. They've seen his greatness. Imagine them witnessing Jesus' power. The sick were healed. The lame could walk. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. The multitudes were fed. The dead were even made alive again. I imagine for these disciples, they felt greatness exuding from Jesus' pores. Surely, we can't fault them for thinking, I want what he's got. Jesus is the man, and I want what he's got. After all, you know, Jesus now has told them for the third time that he's going to be leaving them. Chapter 16, Jesus predicts his death. Chapter 17, Jesus predicts his death. And then here we are in chapter 18 and 20, and Jesus predicts his death for the third time. And the best that his disciples could do is say, all right, now who's going to be the greatest? Not that we are losing our leader, but wow, who's it going to be? It's got to be me. Who, Jesus, now will be the greatest? So they just did the typical human thing, didn't they? They began to wonder who gets the power. They started by asking Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Could it be me, Lord? That wasn't their words, but that's what I read into it. Even to the point of the sons of Zebedee convincing their mother to go and ask Jesus on their behalf to give her sons a position in his kingdom on the right, you know, the expression being your right-hand man. Well, that was the most powerful outside of the one who was on the throne. And then to the left. So they wanted to cover all bases. But these disciples didn't get it. Three times Jesus is saying, I am going to die. And all they're concerned about is, I want your power. Their understanding of greatness and power in the kingdom was so definitely different from the king's interpretation of what that was. Their motives were questionable as well in that the greatness that they were seeking, they didn't want the power so that they could be the humble servants to go out and save the world. But they wanted this greatness for self-serving, selfish, misguided ambition rather than selfless understanding of what that meant to be a servant and to be a slave. This pursuit of their ambition represents what we see all too often in our world. There's pride, there's greed, there's hurt, there's using others, there's an exaltation of oneself over others. This is what just these disciples 
who have walked with Jesus for three years and still not learned what it meant to be a servant. This is what they desired. Well, the impact of the request of the mother of of James and John, who, by the way, uh, biblical scholars have said, have determined that this mother was actually the aunt of Jesus. So that made James and John his cousins. So they might have had a little more one-upmanship on the others because it's a family thing. Yeah, I got some, some clout here. I got some juice. So Jesus, come on now, I'm your auntie. My boys need to sit next to you. You're going to help us out. And so they were already, already using what they thought they had as power, leverage, to now come and approach Jesus. We're next, God. We're next. You know, how we understand greatness determines how we pursue the attainment of it. How we understand greatness determines how we pursue the attainment of it. Well, Jesus gave them another way. Jesus gave them a way that radically reverses the paradigm of power that operates in the norm of our world. Jesus uses atypical examples to demonstrate real power and real greatness in the kingdom. And I don't believe Jesus is talking just the kingdom that's in the the great by and by. Jesus is talking about the kingdom right here on earth as it is in heaven. And so these, these atypical examples that Jesus is using, a child, a servant, a slave. Great images of power and greatness, right? Not at all. Not at all. Jesus turns the values of this world upside down by lifting the powerless over the powerful. Amen? Amen. By placing those who have no status in places of greatness, they become the first in the kingdom. They become the great in the kingdom. And so now what? This passage of discourse has become known as a community prescription. Jesus at this time, he wasn't talking to the masses. Jesus was talking to his community. The church, his disciples, you. Jesus is talking to you, new community. As a community of disciples, Jesus is calling, he was calling them and he's calling us to bear witness to the world by proclaiming the gospel and by living it out as the family of faith. And that living it out has to be a visible witness for the world to see. It has to be a reality that is true for who we are in community that is lived out and seen and demonstrated in our daily walk with him in the world. And how will that be seen? A child comes, a picture of humility, a picture of someone with no status. This is greatness. 
It's seen in humility. It's seen in accountability. It's seen in reconciliation. It's seen in restoration. It's seen in community and forgiveness. It's seen in mercy. And it's seen in grace. And all of that is covered and bathed in love. Donald Hagner, in a commentary from Word, he states that greatness in the kingdom is a matter of humility, not power or position. To become, become humble, that is, to be without status, is to be great by the standards of the kingdom of God. Well, I want to go back to how Jesus concludes his, with his disciples by saying, greatness exists when you become a servant. Greatness exists, you'll be first when you become a slave. My own history has been informed by those who were in bondage and slavery, by those who served and served others. A history of being of people with no power. And so it was not um, my aspirations to follow in that vein. My childhood aspirations and ambitions, I had some of what I heard from you. I wanted to first be a doctor, and I thought, oh, that might be too hard. Uh, So I settled, I moved to a nurse, thinking, you know, a step down. Nurses probably do a lot more and a lot smarter than doctors, I think. Um, And I wanted to be Miss America. Now, back in the day, there was absolutely no one in Miss America pageants that looked like me. So that was probably um, a ludicrous thought, but it was... It was one that was in my mind. You know, the, the models that I had of power were not as Jesus has described. The models I saw of power were people who were lording it over me and people who looked like me. People who relegated people of color to marginalized places in society. The concept of power, as I came to know Christ in the church, actually did not change. And um, for me now to think of this, once I became a Christian, the teachings were, let's do a Bible study or a Bible story, and this is your teaching. But what I saw beyond the teaching was very much like the disciples' conversation with Christ. We've got to have the power and others like the ten becoming indignant. Well, I was in the ranks of those without power. And I believe it was mostly because I belonged to a particular group. And that was our two groups. One being a woman and the other being African American. But... Beyond that, I was on a pursuit. Um, I was on a pursuit because I was going to be somebody, and the world was going to know that I was somebody. And so that meant I needed to do all that I could do to follow the rules and exceed them because the expectations for me were always very low. 
Um, in grammar school, I generally was the only person of color in my class. Um, I, my family moved as we ventured further and further south. We were usually um, labeled as black bus, blockbusters, and white flight would um, kick in immediately. And so that left me in a predominantly white um, classroom, which would change overnight. But I strive to be all that I could be and more. I strive to rise to the level that they did not expect me to rise. And in that pursuit, my family was a poor family. Um, I thought we were poor. I have learned since then we were very rich. And it wasn't wealth defined by money but it was a, a source of wealth defined by love. But at the time, my parents always said, get your education. We can't afford to send you to school, but somehow get it. And I pursued my education. Well, at some point, I, um, after 10 short years undergrad study, I did complete uh, my bachelor's degree in engineering and although my motives weren't corrupt, could there have been some underlying motives to prove people wrong and to move into a place where now I had status? I am now in a profession that there should be some dignity and power and something. Um, what I found was totally different. <laughs> um, but I thought, maybe I've attained, this wasn't a conscious thought, this is kind of my thoughts um, pulse being in that environment. Perhaps I attained a level of greatness now. I could be in the world with the big guns. I lack the personal qualities to bring influence, as the author of that book talked about. She said, I was black and I was female, and I was trying to exist in a very white male world. And you know what? It wasn't working. I struggled with God. I thought, Lord, I've done um, the right thing. I pursued the right things, yet I'm not getting the same response. And so after much misery and pain, which, by the way, was drawing me closer and closer to God, I was beginning to grasp a different way of understanding this concept of power and status. As I pursued Christ more and more, I found myself taking on more of a servant attitude against my wishes, but it was happening. And I was now being a servant to the very ones who were persecuting me. I was able, not on my own volition or abilities, but I was finding myself loving my colleagues. And I hated it, but I was loving them anyway. And I was doing good to those who were persecuting me. And the more good I did, the worse the persecution became. And I'm wondering, how is this working, God? It's not working for me, but I'm doing what you're calling me to do. And so I had this interview with my director or manager at the time in this um, all-white male world who five minutes after I came into this position had told me that I was not wanted there. 
Well, about a year and a half later in my review, he said that I was not a leader and I could never be a leader. And at that point, this is a year and a half later, at that point, I thanked him. I said, thank you, because the leadership role or model that I see here is not the leadership role that I think God has designed for me or desires of me. And so as I took that as a compliment, he could not understand that. But God put something in my heart about being a servant to all because he wanted me to be a witness for him. I was called to be a witness in this very dark place that I, who was professing to be a Christian, and the others around me said they wanted none of my religion, that how could I stand with integrity and authenticity about my faith if I reduce myself to the levels of my brothers, who they came to be known to me as my brothers. And so whatever I had by way of power, I began to give it to them. I began to take calls. I worked in a hospital environment where we were on call. I began to take the load off of them. They couldn't understand it, and neither could I. But I began to find ways to empower my brothers, my colleagues. My own spiritual growth began to open my eyes beyond the personal and to see the brokenness in that place. And God expanded that as he began to show me the brokenness in other systems, in our education system, in our incarceration system, brokenness in my own life that I'm dealing with on a daily basis, the brokenness in racial reconciliation. There is no reconciliation that's happening in our country. It's getting worse by the minute. But God has called us as the church to address that. God is calling you new community the way that you look here says something to the world that they need to see and need to do. But now I'm thinking, God, what is it about being a servant and being a slave that makes us great? And you say that we are first. How, Lord, help us? How, Lord, are we supposed to do that? Well, none of our personal qualities will be able to do that. And it's not easier than you think. It is a difficult, difficult journey. Dr. King says um, in one of his quotes, he says, I am not interested in power for power's sake, but I'm interested in power that is moral, that is right, and that is good. God is calling us, church, to be people who are moral, right, and good. And to look at power, not with how many initials we can put behind our names, but to look at power as a way to serve one another and to serve the kingdom. Jimi Hendrix, some of you are probably too young to know who he is, but Jimi Hendrix said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. And then one other quote, 
from Blaise Pascal. He says, justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may be just. Jesus is calling us to a new way of seeing power. Jesus is calling us to think differently, but don't stop there, but to live differently in how we see power. My narrative has been influenced by a history that I wanted nothing to do with. I disconnected myself from my story because everything I learned in my history books about slavery was negative and it was about the slave's fault. And so that wasn't my story. That was some story way back when. But through people like Dr. Martin Luther King and people like Malcolm X and people like John Perkins and people like David Swanson and Pat Adaranijo and my sister Michelle back there, I have learned. I have learned that God has a new way for us, the church. And I have learned I can connect myself to a story and be proud of it, to know the history of my people as people who were put into bondage. And I imagine there was greatness where they came from. They were kings and queens. There was greatness there. And to be brought here, stripped of land, stripped of family, stripped of identity, stripped of personhood, to be brought to this place and survive and to make it. And I stand here because of them. To not connect my story to that story is a travesty. And so I own it with my very being. I own that story. And when Jesus says to be a slave is to be first, I latch on to that Jesus. I am from the lineage of slavery. I am from the lineage of service, but it's not a service of what my mother did as a domestic worker in going to homes and taking care of those homes and bringing stuff back for her family. Not that kind of service, but it's being humble, being a servant for others, that I don't need status or power, but God provides the greatness through him that the world can see. Well, my ambition to achieve greatness looks quite different from my childhood dreams and aspirations. Miss America, who needs it? <laughs> Anybody here have aspirations to be Miss America or Mr. America? Is there a Mr. America? Who needs it? With an ever-growing love and desire for God and a growing awareness of the model of Christ before me, I am committed to work again against the systems that use power as a detriment to others, that use power to oppress people, that use power as an entitlement and a privilege that some just naturally have it because how they are born and others can't ever attain it. Well, for me, I don't need it. I got a power much greater than what society can ever give me. And that power, I pray, is the same power that you got working in you. 
but you've got to claim it and you've got to grab it and you've got to be the community that will hold one another accountable to how you live with that power and within that power. God is calling you new community to be this new community. This passage, this community prescription tells us who we are and who we must be for the world to see. And so it's, it's a model that Jesus offers us that flips the script, turns it upside down. It's a model that the world can't get with, but that's not our problem. It's a model he's given us. And the world doesn't know about it, but the world should see it. And he needs to see it through you. And so I want to close with this poem. This poem from a book um, called Creative Brooding. And I've made some just slight tweaking to it in um, the pronouns. Because I want to emphasize the work of the community. You know, I think we live in a society that has successfully or is successful in moving us into um, such independence and isolation and um, individually, individualization. But we are a community. And this poem says, Dear Lord and Master, and this is our prayer too, we, the community, are like James and John. Lord, we size up other people in terms of what they can do for us, how they can further our programs, feed our egos, satisfy our needs, give us strategic advantage. We exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for our own sake. Lord, we turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors your direction for our schemes, your power for our projects, your sanction for our ambitions, your blank check for whatever we want. We are like James and John. Change us, Lord. Make us a man and a woman who ask of you and of others, what can we do for you? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Um, are you guys up for a little bit of Q&A time? Yes? Okay. Uh, we, just so you know, from this point on, we know if you're looking at your phone that you're checking the bear score. Just so you know. We know that. Um, Michelle, would you be willing to kind of just think of something, a question that you might, from some of the things that you've heard this morning, and then in a minute, bring that to, to um, Reverend Blue. Is that okay? And then uh, Nick, Nick, would you be willing to do the same thing? Just not, I'm not putting you either on the spot. I'm giving you a few minutes. But just as something that's kind of bubbled up in you, like uh, on behalf of our church, a question that you, could, you know, that you could bring to Debbie here in just a minute. Is that okay? You guys just, okay. So just kind of, if you don't have anything, that's okay. Um, uh, are you, I feel bad sitting. Do you want a chair? Do you want to sit down? Okay, all right. Um, let's put up uh, the quote. Um, th- th- we didn't rehearse this, just so you know, so she's kind of on the spot right now. But this is a quote from Dr. King's letter um, from Birmingham Jail. And uh, Tyler, let's put up the, the one that starts with, I have traveled. Uh, let me read this to you real quick. And then I'd like to just kind of get your take 
from it uh, for our church. I have traveled the length. So just so you know, this, Dr. King is in, in jail at this, at this point in, in Alabama. Um, and and he's, he's responding to a group of white uh, ministers, uh, mostly Protestant, but some, some Jewish uh, ministers as well, who basically said you need to slow down. You're going too fast. You're trying to accomplish too much too quickly. They say some other things as well, too. But, uh, so this is just one, one part of his response. I've traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I've looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenwards. I've beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I've found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Um, So I know that's familiar, very familiar to you, but... uh, I often think that Dr. King would say similar things to us, and it wouldn't just be in the South, right? Driving around and looking at our churches, and we're a very Christian nation in many ways. Um, but I wonder if for a minute you could kind of reflect on what would he point to, do you think? What, what do you point to today as um, gaps between what the church says and what we do? Where are the places where we're silent? Where are the places that we're more content to stay within our safe buildings and sing our safe songs, and, 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 and where, where are we just missing the call of justice in our world yeah. today? You want a specific example? I, because I, I could say everywhere. As, as, I think as specific as you can be will help us as, as we try to develop eyes to see similar things. Um, today, I think there is this reticence about talking about race. Um, I think we feel that we have arrived. We have a black president. We live in a post-racial society. And let's just move on. And I think that race is an issue. Um, I've heard from, um, I hear often from folks in the generation under me that it's something that is our baggage and we need to just move on now. Yet when you see situations like the inequities in education, when you see places specifically like Detroit, a major city in our country that has not one one food market, one grocery store, major chain grocery store in Detroit proper, when they're children are at an educational level that for a high schooler, I think it was high school or either eighth grade, eighth grader, that it was determined they are, their testing is equivalent to not ever having been in school. When you look at the statistics, uh, the demographics of folks who are incarcerated and the reasons that they are incarcerated and the majority population in our prisons being African-American males. There's something wrong. 
Where is the church? Dr. King says, the day we become silent about things that matter, we begin to die. The church is dying because we are silent on these things that matter. And if they matter to God, they have to matter to us. Why, the, why silence, do you think? And, and I'm thinking especially of, of some of the things that you talked about this morning related to power. Um, is, is there a connection between particularly those of us who do enjoy privilege and power and being willing to not be silent, being willing to um, see things that we haven't seen before or take stands that we haven't taken before? Does that, that make sense? It does make sense, but I think that's a question that you should answer. Yeah, but this isn't my Sunday. This is, yeah. <laughs> but you talked about people with privilege, privilege and power. power. Yes. Um, I can only speak from outside of that realm. Um, but I think there is a, a, a fear. Fear is a big driver in, in our society today. And it's not just fear of someone's going to hurt me. Mm. But I think it's fear of not being um, seen as somebody a fear of status, a fear of losing what you might have, a fear of having to name the injustice, which then might mean you have to give up something. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's, there's a whole range of fears, I think, at work in our country that for those who are of the privileged group and the entitlement group, to be able to grapple with that, to, to understand that the way you're created is not your fault, but the things that you benefit or you're entitled to, you benefit from, that's a fault of our system. Mm-hmm. And to name that means what? What do you do about that? Mm. So really, that's not a question I can answer for those who are in that group, but a question I think you should grapple with. So, so this line comes to mind in the same letter. Uh, he, uh, Dr. King writes, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntar- voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So what is it? What is it and, and you're probably going to turn it back around on me again. That's okay. But um, from your experience in, in working with a lot of different churches and in, in, in our denomination, um, what does it look like for a people who's, who's um, uh, used to being in positions of privilege and power to hear the, 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 the powerful call of the oppressed. You know, what, what are things, what have been catalysts that you've observed where people actually begin to pay attention or to notice or to listen? Uh, what comes to mind for me is... Um, the experience of Sankofa. Sankofa, for those who don't know what that is, is a um, bus journey where there are um, intentional conversations of race and privilege and oppression and injustice. Uh, each person's partnered with someone of a different ethnicity, and we go to hard places and have hard conversations. Um, that's a place, um, actually where the power grid is really leveled Mm -hmm. in that there are folks from every level of society, every walk of life, but for our experience together, 
they're not allowed to say what they do because most of us, our identity is tied in what we do. And so if you're uh, a person with high academic standings, partner with a person who lives in, say, Inglewood, unemployed, and has a family member incarcerated, you already begin to um, tilt the balance when you list who you, what you do and who you are. So Sankofa starts out with leveling the playing field, at least for those couple of days. Mm-hmm. And what I have seen happen on Sankofa, and again, this is maybe expressions that you should speak to, but what I have seen happen on Sankofa is a willingness, a forced willingness, I might say, that people begin to recognize what white privilege is all about. Mm-hmm. What this whole line of entitlement is, uh, to deal with the, the feelings of that is, is, you know, the guilt and the shame and the pain and the blame and all the rest of that that goes with it. Yeah, we need to acknowledge those things, but now what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And I have, over the years, seen evidence of folks who now get it and become those folks who walk alongside of, who walked alongside of a Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr. Mm -hmm. to say, this is an injustice and it needs to be made right. And so there's there's evidence there. It's few and far between, Mm -hmm. but um, again, that's something that I would love to hear what has come out of your own experience with that. There's been a number of folks in our church who have gone on the Sankofa journey, just so you know. Michelle, I believe, has gone. I've gone. Uh, John White and I were partnered up together. Um, I think Michelle's mother, Mr. Regina, Regina, was on the trip. Mm-hmm. Curtis was on the trip. So uh, we advertise these things in our church because we, we, we really believe that this is one of the critical ways that we can begin getting at some of these, mm-hmm. uh, these, these issues. And, and I, for me personally, being, it, 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 <laughs> I need to be in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person with significant privilege and power, most of the time, I'm just not in that environment, or if I am, I'm not aware of it, mm-hmm. right? To, to hear uh, uh, voices and experiences and stories that would actually impact me and shift mm-hmm. how, I, how I see the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a, that doesn't happen naturally to me, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, I've been blinded to that. Um, and so being intentionally in those settings is critical, I think, for those of us who do come from, from a place of privilege to be, I think, graced with the opportunity to see from a, a, a perspective that hasn't been our, our own, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that, has to, that has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, that's not something that just, ha- norm- you don't ju- we don't just find ourselves, I yeah. think, in these conversations. Yeah, and I think um, you've hit on something really important, David, in that um, relationships yeah. um, in community are extremely important. Once you are in relationship with someone who is different and has different experiences and we share those experiences. Uh, You build levels of trust. You're able to go to places that are difficult, but places then that you can suspend judgment and begin to hear and become more sensitized, not just to that person's experience, to a broader experience of a people group. And I believe that in those relationships then, God begins to work on our hearts, changing us so that we become more aware when we see the injustices, Mm -hmm. not just because of the person that we're in relationship with, but we are more keenly aware Mm -hmm. of what those injustices are. 
Um, one incident for, or one example for me is um, this, in, this whole criminal justice issue. Um, I've had family members who have been incarcerated, and um, I realized that they did some things and they needed to um, pay the price for the crimes that they have committed. But I began to hear stories mm-hmm. from people who had children incarcerated in the detention centers, of people who um, have gone to prison for an offense that if they had privilege and power and resources, they could have maybe gone to a rehab or somewhere else. I began to hear these stories and thought, wow, something's not right here. And the more that I delved into that, the more God began to break my heart for what I was learning. And in a country, a free country, we incarcerate more people in this world here in the United States. We make up 5% of the population of the world and incarcerate 25 people, people behind bars. Mm. I visited Angola, the prison in Baton Rouge. The population there, 77 to 79% African-American males mainly, most of them serving life sentences. And when I heard about some of the things that had brought them into that environment, something is wrong. And so it wasn't, for me, it wasn't a black-white thing in terms of race, but it was an injustice of a broken system. But it is black-white when we think about the larger system and what it's doing. If, you, or if you're not a, a familiar with Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, I would highly recommend that to you. She's been in Chicago a couple of times um, recently. But she is a person who comes from that um, law judicial background. And from her experience, she said, something is wrong here. There is something happening in our society. And where is the church? Michelle, do you have something? As long as you talk loud, yep. That helps. This part of it, Michelle, I'm having a hard time. Is, am I, is, with, uh, yeah, why don't you, if you can. I don't think using our voices to, to demand um, what might be right, what is right, takes us out of the realm of being a servant or a slave, as Jesus talked about. I think he's calling us to be that. And it's done in humility. It is done in love. 
It's done with accountability. It's done with mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so I don't think there's a conflict in that. I see the both working together. God is calling, Jesus was calling his disciples to do what was right. So he wasn't mixing the message saying, now go do what's right over here and then over here be slave and and free Mm -hmm. or slave and servant. So I don't think there's a conflict in those two concepts at all. Can I ask a follow-up to that? Or were you, do you, how, does that make sense? How does that, so how does one be sustained in that? You know, what, what is the, where are the deep wells that that person draws from and, and sustains that, that sort of a, a Christ-centered servant spirit while continuing to face and the, these, these sorts of oppression and injustice? Good, very good question. Um, I... I think when we're immersed, not when, and not if, but when we're immersed in this aspect of being God's mediators of compassion, mercy, and justice, it's going to take its toll. And so the places of, of the wellsprings of nourishment has to be being with God, being present with him. But I think not in isolation only. I think there's a personal piece of devotional time with God, but I think in the broader community, we need one another. You know that song Hezekiah Walker sings, I need you, you need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We need one another. And so I value what you are doing as a new community. And to be authentically in community You've got to come together and to be in the presence of Christ together to be nourished and replenished because this will drain you. And so you're in a community that um, I, I have no idea what the demographics here are like, but looking at you, I would suspect that it might be, you might be representative of these demographics here. And so what will you do to sustain yourself? Mm-hmm. That's the question. And again, I believe relationships are key. Nick, did you? As loud as you can. <laughs> Liao, Nick Liao. Yeah, yeah. stand up, Nick. That would be helpful. Thanks. Really good questions. Um, yeah, it's really put me on the spot this morning. <laughs> uh, let's see. First question. I believe that, first of all, you can't be what you aren't here in community. So to be a source of God's righteousness and justice in the community, it has to start here first. 
I believe that you have to have authentic relationships. And Jesus, it was interesting in uh, chapter 20, when um, the mother came to Jesus to ask if her two sons could sit on the right and left, and the ten became indignant. Well, what did Jesus do? He didn't go and talk to the mother and the two sons and then go talk to the ten. He brought them all together. And he said, let's talk about this. Here's what I want you to know, what, what I want to teach you today. And he brought the conflict, what could have been a very conflictual situation, that these two who now wanted the power, going behind the backs of the other ten and saying, we want this some of the dynamics, you have to be careful of the dynamics here within the community and become authentic in your relationships here first. Then you can go out and be a mighty force. If Jesus didn't address that situation, not with them separate, but all together, then I'm not sure what we would have had as a result. So deal with your stuff in here. Be real with each other right here first. And um, then you go out as a mighty force. Mm-hmm. So that was the first question. The second question was, I'm old, so I can't take it all in and retain it. Oh, temptations and perils. I think um, haughtiness, pride, a feeling that we have arrived. Yeah. Look at us. We reflect the kingdom. Mm. So we're doing the right thing, right? Mm. But if that's as far as it's going, then I don't believe you are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that the danger is thinking because we look good on Sundays and we we don't look like my church, an African-American church on the south side or church, a covenant church on the far north side that's all white, all black. But you look different and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful reflection of the kingdom. Well, what are the relationships, right? Like, are they kingdom relationships with one another? And so the the haughtiness or the pride or the going out and saying, look at what we're doing. We are doing a lot better comparing ourselves to another church that might not, not be doing what you're doing. I think all of these things are very common to who we are as humans. And uh, can creep in, and again, that's where community comes in, because we need to hold one another accountable. And the last thing is, how do you connect with um, what the efforts of the denomination? We are not um, programmatic in terms of uh, compassion, mercy, and justice. We have some uh, things that we do, but we're more ministry-minded in terms of a prophetic vision and a voice calling people to right living, to join God in making things right in our very broken world. And so when you as new community are doing what you're doing, you are tapping into what we're talking about. And we want to encourage and uh, affirm and empower in ways that we can what you're doing but it's, we're here to serve you. You're not here to serve us. So how do we partner together to say, what are the needs in this community? What must we do? How do we survey what's happening here and name those things that are broken and begin to address them? But in all things, sisters and brothers, I think we start first with our own brokenness. We can't go and fix brokenness elsewhere if we haven't dealt with our own. 
And I believe that goes back into some of the perils and temptations as yes. well, is that we can see the speck in somebody else's eye right. and have not removed the log from yes. our own. Yeah. And I'm not speaking, well, I am speaking individually, but I'm speaking more on a community level. Yeah. If that makes sense. It sure does. Would you pray for us in our church and our mission? Thank you. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on, come on out. Well, I want to say thank you, too, for um, this opportunity to be with you. But, Lord, we, we mm. know that you have planted new community in this place for such a time as this. And we now, Lord, give the mission, your mission, of this church totally to you. Lord, call us to a, a level of conviction and conversion to be the people that you have called us to be, not as individuals. You desire that our walk, Lord, strengthens and grows and becomes all that you desire to be. But, Lord, you are calling us together as a community. You are calling these people together as a new community, a new community situated in Bronzeville. Lord, I pray that you would start right here. Right here, right now. Yes, Jesus. In breaking your people's heart for the things that are breaking your heart. Yes, Lord, in your word in Ecclesiastes, it says, the more knowledge, the more sorrow. The more wisdom, the more grief. Lord, give them sorrow. Give them grief. Then let them know, assure them, Lord, that they are right in line with you. Mm, yes, yes. Lord, I pray that new community is not silent about things that matter. Yes, Jesus. That when they become silent, they begin to die. Mm, mm, mm. Lord, give them new life, a vibrancy, a witness to this world that will be totally reversed from what the world says about power and status and authority. Mm -hmm. Give them a heart, Lord, that loves you and is poured out into this community. Lord, I I think it was Cornel West who says that um, justice is what love looks like in public. Lord, make their love public, but may it begin right here in the midst of this community. Lord, I pray for the leader. I pray for the the person you have called, Pastor David Swanson here, Lord. I pray that you will continue to replenish his heart, Lord, restore him, renew him, refresh him. Lord, I pray that you will send others around to offer encouragement for those times when he thinks that I just hit a wall. I can't go any further. What is it, Lord, that you would have us to do? Send those angels, Lord, to him to encourage and uplift his heart. Give him strength and stamina, Lord, to persevere. And in their perseverance, Lord, as Romans said, you're building character. And in that character, Lord, you are building hope. And your hope will not disappoint us. So I thank you, Lord, for new community. I thank you for what you are doing in this community through them. Lord, they have no idea Mm, of mm, the amazing things mm, 
that you will empower them mm. to do and to be in this community. Thank you. Speak. But, Lord, they will approach it mm. as servants yes. and slaves. Mm. And they will mystify the world. Jesus, Jesus. But, Lord, you will begin a healing yes. that will take and move this world Jesus. into a better place. So bless them, Lord. Empower them. Encourage them. Uplift them. And draw them closer to you, which will draw them in turn closer to one another. These things we pray in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of his people say it. Amen. 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 Can you thank Debbie? Really Um, I think community is maybe something we heard this morning. Would you agree? Community. So let me give you two things. Uh, This membership class that we have coming up, some of you need to be there. Come and be in our home for a few hours on that Saturday morning and learn a little bit more what it means to participate in the community life of our church. If you're not in a community group, one of our small group Bible studies, this is one of our intentional vehicles as a church that we try to advance this authentic, reconciling community. So stop by the welcome table. They'll tell you about uh, both of these things. I want, uh, Tyler, go ahead and put up that second uh, quote. And I want this to be our benediction today. Again, this comes from Dr. King's uh, letter from prison. I want you to hear what he says. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinions. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. What might be put an end to in our day, church? A small colony of heaven that is so God-intoxicated that the evils and the injustices in our days will be confronted, called out, spoken against, and allow the Holy Spirit of God to advance. What might that be in our day? Can we ask that question, church? And as Debbie said, it starts where? Right here in our hearts, right? So let me pray for us as we go out. Holy Spirit of the living God, we ask that you you convict and heal at the same time our brokenness. God, we pray that you would raise up men and women within our church who have the stamina, the deep wells to constantly be speaking out the prophetic voice. We pray that you would be raising up women and men in our church who have known power and privilege and who choose to give it away. 
to choose to take on your easy yoke, submitted lives of humility to you? Would you raise up women and men in our church who've been overlooked by our society, who have been invisible in our culture, to lead us to speak truth to our church and to our city? Jesus, not ever, ever for our sake or for our reputation, always for yours, always for your glory, Jesus, we pray. And so now send us out, send us out convicted, send us out encouraged, send us out hopeful of what you have yet to do. We will look forward, God, to what you choose to do in our day, in our time, in our city, and in our church. In the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. Come back next week. Have a great week.